Well, good morning. Uh, again, we have been reading Mark's gospel together, and in that story, here's where we are. We're at the front end of Jesus' final week uh, before his arrest and crucifixion. So over the last several Sundays together, we've looked at Jesus uh, answering questions from the religious elites of his day, and they culminated, as we saw last week, in this question from one of the scribes about which commandment was the most important of all. And Jesus answered that question, and Mark said that after Jesus answered it, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So into that silence, Jesus starts asking his own questions. I'm going to read Mark 12 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from the end of Mark 12, verses 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the best places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that that thing that we just sang together, that your word is like a living banner unfurled in front of us, that we would experience not that those words, not just as words that we sang, um, but as truth, that we would, through this word that we have read and heard together, see more clearly the word that is incarnate, that bears our flesh our elder brother Jesus, who is in fact praying for us right now. Show us his grace and change us by it, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I have to tell you, I kept thinking uh, about the movie Jaws while I was working through Jesus' teaching uh, at the front end of this passage that we just read together. Uh, I'm guessing that at least a handful of you know that movie, Jaws. If you don't, uh, Roy Scheider plays the police chief in this New England uh, coastal beach town that begins to get stalked by a shark right at the height of the tourist season. Uh, And the scene in that movie that I kept thinking about in particular in relation to Jesus' teaching was the one 
when the police chief and this nerdy fish scientist played by Richard Dreyfus first get into a boat with this salty old sea captain and go out to sea in order to capture that shark or try to kill that shark. So they get out to sea and uh, kind of get settled into the place where they're going to be and the three of them start doing their own thing on the boat and Roy Scheider um, gets the really unpleasant task of throwing Chum into the water to try to attract the shark. He's not happy with this. He's kind of doing this job, not really paying attention. And he hears something and turns to the water. And, and he turns, and just as he turns, the shark surfaces for just a few seconds. And he is eye to eye with the shark, which is grotesquely, absurdly, frighteningly large. So somehow he keeps his composure and he stops what he's doing and he's got these wide eyes and he stands up quietly and he slowly backs his way into the bridge where the captain is and he says as straight-faced as he possibly can, you're going to need a bigger boat. You're going to need a bigger boat. And so here's why that popped in my mind. I think that Jesus is saying something similar to the scribes and to the people who are listening to him that day when he proposes that really strange riddle about the identity of the Messiah. So here's what Jesus says. Jesus asks, listen, he says, David himself calls the Messiah Lord, so how can the Messiah be his son? We'll talk for a minute um, about what Jesus means when he asks that question. But for now, let me say that I think that that is Jesus' way of telling everyone they're going to need a bigger boat. Their thoughts about who he really is have been way too small. Their thoughts about who he really is has, have been way too constrained. Their categories for him are woefully inadequate, inadequate and insufficient to contain the truth about him, the truth of his identity. And of course, it's possible that there are some of us here this morning for whom that is true as well. So this is a good teaching for all of us, no matter who we are, to think about this morning. So here's, here's a reminder of particularly where we are in the story. It's, it's Passover week, and that means that Jerusalem is flooded with pilgrims from all over the country. And the temple courts where Jesus has been answering all of these questions and spending that day, they, they would have been coursing with people. In fact, Mark describes them as a great throng of people. This is an incredibly public moment. Jesus, just a few days before, had entered into Jerusalem and been greeted as a king. But before he entered into Jerusalem, before that happened, something happened that morning on the way towards the city. And you might remember it, and it's really relevant to this passage that we just read. A blind man named Bartimaeus was begging by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was making his way into the city, just when he knew Jesus was in earshot, he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, believe it or not, this is the first time anyone in Mark's story has connected Jesus so explicitly with David's royal line. 
I mean, the disciples back in chapter 8 uh, had said, we, we think you're the Messiah, we believe that you're the Messiah, but they didn't connect it with David. They didn't call him David's son. They didn't say a word about it. And in any way, Jesus had told them, once they said that, to put a lid on it. No one has talked about it until Bartimaeus does. Not even Mark. Not even Mark at the beginning of his story. It's Matthew and it's Luke who make Jesus' Davidic lineage clear, his genealogy clear, but not Mark. Mark does not say one word about it. And I think it's because he wanted to wait until he could tell the story of Bartimaeus. You know, the guy who can't see is the one who really can see. Mark loves that kind of irony. And now... Now it's in the air, and that's why the crowds greet Jesus with these hosannas. That's why they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So Jesus' lineage, it's a live issue now. He traces his line back to David, and lots and lots of people expected that the Messiah, I mean, almost everyone who was there expected that the Messiah, this true king that was going to come one day, that was going to defeat their enemies, who was going to restore their fortunes, who was going to bring in peace and justice. Everybody expected that that was going to be David's son, one of his ancestors. So, you know, all of, all that's happening is the people are connecting the dots. They're seeing Jesus do things that sound awful, you know, that look awful messianic. They're hearing him do things that sound awful messianic, and they're just connecting the dots, and they're saying, come on, he's the Messiah, right? And they say so. Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, son of David. So, you know, all of this is deeply, deeply troubling to the establishment. And as Mark tells us more than one time, it, it fills them with fear. And so since the tail end of chapter 11, Mark has shown these establishment types coming up to Jesus one after another, asking him questions, questions that are designed to mostly expose him as a fraud or undercut his authority or challenge this really scandalous identity that the people are pinning on him. But Jesus has answered all of them. And they can't think of any other way to come at him. Even if they could think of another way to come at him, they don't want to lose any more face with the crowds. I mean, they're starting to look like clowns. And so it is into this silence. With all of these questions about Jesus' identity swirling in the air, with all of what he has done already that week swirling in the air, that Jesus begins to ask his own questions. And this is what he says first. How do the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Now, there is no way that I could possibly overstate how fundamentally unsettling that question would have been. Because everybody, almost everybody, who's listening to Jesus in that moment thought that the Christ would definitely be a son of David. So when Jesus asked this question, it's like, are you telling me, Jesus, that he's not? Are you about ready to say that this thing that we all believe is true isn't true? So Jesus quotes Psalm 110. It was the Old Testament lesson that we heard, read this morning. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
So Psalm 110 was a coronation psalm. And it was sung uh, to the kings of Judah when they were inaugurated to the throne. And after Judah was destroyed and there were no more kings to coronate, this song was sung by the people looking forward to this future king that would one day return, this king that would come and restore their fortunes. And so for hundreds of years, people have been singing this song and thinking about this king. And Jesus is just asking the people to hear it in the literal voice of David and consider the implications of it. David himself, Jesus says, David himself calls the Messiah Lord. So how can the Messiah be his son? Jesus is just appealing to common sense. Fathers don't call their sons Lord. They don't call their descendants Lord. And here's the thing that is so compelling to me. Jesus does not answer his question. He does not answer his own question. He just throws this riddle out there and it hangs in the air. How in the world could David call one of his own descendants Lord? And I want to tell you, church, there is no way to answer that question without a bigger boat. There's no way for anyone who's listening to Jesus to begin to even begin to answer that question without completely abandoning all of their small and restrictive and pinched off categories and conceptions of the Messiah. I mean, it's amazing to consider three days ago before Jesus rolled into town, three days ago, all of their categories were fine and they made sense. But now every single one of them is blowing up. Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is a son of David, what he is doing is pulling back the corner on the fuller truth, the fuller mystery. Sure, he's, God's son. he's David's son. Sure, he's David's son. But he is more than that, too. And we, as readers, know what Jesus is thinking, because Mark already told us in the very first line of the gospel, this is a story about God's son. He's David's son, but somehow he is God's son too. I mean, Jesus is not just talking about God, bringing in his kingdom and reconciling the world to himself. He is, Jesus is, as the Apostle Paul will say many, many years later, he is the one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in order to reconcile the world to himself. Jesus is not just going around talking about God keeping his promises. Jesus is God keeping his promises. This is the closest that Jesus has ever come to making that mystery explicit. And I think it's amazing that the closest he has ever come is an unanswered riddle. And I think that's because he wants the people who are listening to him and wants us to think and to linger and to consider the question of who he really is. And you know, I know there are some of us this morning who are in that very place, in that place of not knowing exactly what to make out of Jesus. You know, he's clearly a great moral teacher and guide. He's certainly one of the greatest leaders that the world has ever known. 
his insight, his depth of insight in, into wisdom is pretty much unparalleled. But if the answer to Jesus' riddle is what he thinks it is, then all of those boats are way, way too small for him. Leader, teacher, sage, they're all too small. In fact, all of the boats in all of the world are too small for him. The question about who Jesus really is has been ringing throughout Mark's story. And here we are, and Jesus is holding his cards in his hand, and he is hinting at what's there. So if you're here and you're, you're not yet a Christian, but you're in that place where you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, you're trying to make sense of who he is, then I invite you to take up the invitation of this riddle <laughs> and to think and to linger and to consider because that riddle is an invitation to faith in him. And of course, there are some of us, many, many of us here this morning who are Christians, and maybe we're in the place where we have lost sight of who Jesus really is and what that should mean for us, what that really does mean for us. You know, the thing that kept all of the establishment types from embracing Jesus, the thing that kept blocking them was fear. They feared that it would threaten everything about their lives. And you know, of, of course, they were absolutely right. And I don't think too much has changed. I think that it's my fear and yours that keep people like us from fully embracing who Jesus is. I mean, if Jesus is who he says he is, if this riddle has the answer that Jesus wants us to get, if Jesus is God then the things that he teaches us about our money or about our relationships or about our worry and anxiety, those things are not just good advice that we should take into account. They are the truth that shapes the grain of the world. They are the backbone of our reality. But I get afraid. I get afraid of what the implications are of saying, I don't get to do whatever I want with my money. I get afraid. I get afraid of what it might look like if I don't get the final say on how I run my relationships. You know, who do I get to sleep with and who do I have to forgive and who am I really called to love? You know, we don't normally have intellectual problems with these things. What we have around those things is fear. Fear of losing control. Fear of giving up control. Fear that we don't get to be God and then who knows what will happen. So Jesus' riddle is an invitation for me and you too. It's an invitation to linger and to think and to consider. It's an invitation to faith in him again. It's an invitation to lose our life for his sake in order to gain it again. Do we believe? 
So Jesus has just challenged this well-known scribal interpretation, and then it's amazing. He, he squares off against the scribes themselves. Beware of the scribes, he says. Now, we don't really have easy categories to get a handle on how the scribes were regarded in their world and in their day. For instance, the separation between church and state or religion and the nation that we kind of take for granted in our public life, that was unthinkable in the first century. And so to be a religious leader was by default to be a political leader and vice versa. So these scribes, these scribes are among the most eminent people around. And when they walked by, it was customary for people to stand up out of respect and out of admiration for them. In some ways, this, I think, is how we treat celebrities or how we treat athletes, you know, scrambling to get a selfie with them or to get an autograph from them or to get a nervous word in to them. Well, Jesus, Jesus gets a word in too. Beware. (laughs) Watch out. They like to walk around, Jesus says. They like to walk around in their long, fancy robes. They love to have people fawn all over them with these big greetings in the marketplaces. They love to sit in the best, most honorific seats in the synagogues and into all, at all the feasts they get invited to. They love to pray those long, silver-tongued prayers. Man, they eat that stuff up. Well, you know what else they eat up, Jesus says? The widow's houses. I mean, Jesus strips the varnish off. He's calling out the hypocrisy of a class of people who have become wealthy, who have become comfortable off of the backs and goodwill of the poor and the needy and the vulnerable, the very people they were supposed to be caring for. And it's blunt and it is unambiguous. And as soon as you start to wonder, why did Jesus say that right then and right there? He just walks away. And he makes a few strides over and sits down across from the treasury and he watches people put money in the offering. (laughs) It's strange. But this is where Jesus' comments about the scribes and about widows start to fall into place. They start to begin to make sense. Jesus is watching them put the money in. And Mark says many rich people put in large sums. And then a poor widow came in and she put in two copper coins. Those two coins together were worth about one sixty-fourth of an average person's wage for a day. The point is that her gift was infinitesimal, comically so especially when you compare it to the large sums that the wealthy put in. But Jesus calls the twelve to him and and brings them over close, and he says, truly, I'm going to tell you something, and, and you can mark this down as truth. This poor widow has put in more than everyone else who contributed to the offering box. Now, that is not mathematically true. <laughs> the numbers don't work out. <laughs> So what does Jesus mean? He says, well, they, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had. All that she had for her whole life. Everything she had to live on. 
Jesus is saying, listen, the wealthy, and frankly, anyone who put money in the offering box that day, they all gave out of their margin. They all gave a small portion of the larger whole. But the widow, the widow, she had no margin. She put in everything. Everything she had. So Jesus has heightened a contrast that exists between these two groups, between the scribes and this widow, two ways to live and be in this world. The scribes had selfishly used their position in life to become wealthy on the backs of the poor, like, like this poor widow. But she had given all that she had away, everything. And in the scandalous economy of Jesus' kingdom, that meant that she had given far more than everyone else. It's not just a funny little story that happened at the end of a long day. It is a living example of what it looks like to lose your life in order to gain it. This beautiful woman becomes for you and me a picture of what it looks like to live not out of fear, but to live out of faith. She is a picture of what it looks like to allow God to be God, to let Jesus be who Jesus really is, and all of the implications that come with it. I mean, can you imagine being her? Can you imagine how out of control she felt when she dropped the last two things she had to her name into that offering box? Completely out of control. And church, that is the life that you and I have been made for. In her humility, in her poverty, in her trust, she has shown us how to live that life. But there is more even to the story than that. She gave everything, all that she had to live on, everything she had for life, and so she walks away empty. And that makes this beautiful woman a pointer to Jesus. I mean, he had told his disciples a while back that he was going to do what she just did. He said the Son of Man didn't come here to be served. He came to serve, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, Jesus is going to give everything that he has in just a few short days. And church, I want to tell you, to believe this, to believe this, man, that requires the biggest boat of all. To believe that this one in whom the fullness of God dwells, that he is going to bring about this kingdom and all of its justice and peace and forgiveness, to believe that the one in whom, for whom, through whom, and by whom everything was created is going to die so that we could be made rich? Man, there's no boat for that. In a million years, we would never dream up a story like that, but we find that it is the true story of the world. Unlike the scribes who had used their position to gain an advantage, Jesus doesn't hang on to his position at all. He opens his hands and through his death 
and resurrection and ascension. He gives people like you and me the right to be called daughters and sons of God. And because that's true, church, because that's true, there is no fear, no fear that cannot be burned away in our lives. There is no fear too powerful that it has to control us. And because that's true, Jesus is worthy of our love and of our devotion and of our faith. Let me pray for us. Father, it is, it's hard for us to look at this beautiful woman and to imagine ourselves in her shoes. We who have so much, so much to insulate ourselves with, so much to distract ourselves with. But we ask, Father, that you would help us to see her <laughs> and to see ourselves in her and to believe and to walk into all of the uncertainty and all of the chaos that will come when we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Help us to find that when we walk into that, we are finally walking into the life that we have been created for. Give us whatever we need to believe that. Do that for our good. Do that for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.